So we're winding down this first exciting day that we've had together. It's always nice to get this time in the evening to, to settle a little bit while the kids play. So hopefully you've gotten to have some quiet time, uh, come into presence, let the energy settle down a little bit. And you could take this time now to just check in for a moment with how things are going, where you feel at this, where you feel at this point. What's the quality of the body? Is the energy buzzing? Or is it just falling? <laughs> What's the quality of the mind? What emotions are coming up for you here? Whether it's excitement, joy, or maybe some disappointment or sadness, old feelings or new feelings. Before uh, I embarked on this adventure of parenthood, I spent about a decade as kind of a part-time Dharma bum. Didn't really have a fixed occupation. I just kind of travel around and sit retreats, sit a lot of long retreats, uh, do a lot of practice at home when I was in informal retreat. Um, did several long retreats here, you know, many months. And periods of practice in Burma, in Asia, which is the main lineage that I've trained in. And I did one point, at one point I did, um, I spent a year there as a nun, practicing in the monastic tradition. Uh, just a little bit of a flavor of, of what Ajahn has committed his life to, you know, wearing the robes, practicing a certain amount of discipline, and uh, living in this very challenging, uh, situation in Burma, living in a small hut <laughs> with lots of critters, you know, I'd be walking down the path and all of a sudden there would be like a 12-foot Burmese python, you know, walking along, <laughs> slithering along with me, or I'd be uh, going to leave my kuti and there'd be, uh, you know, a nice big chunky scorpion sitting on my doormat, you know, to navigate around. Um, they have these great spiders <laughs> that are about the size of your hand, you know, so dealing with these kinds of things, dealing with the heat, uh, incredible heat sometimes, dealing with difficult food. Uh, at one point I got very malnourished and uh, quite ill and took a long time to recover and I just, you know, had to keep going through that because that's what you do when you're in a third world country in a rural area. So it really pushed the limits, you know, my comfort limits, physical comfort and mental comfort, you know, I was in seclusion, uh, hardly speaking to anybody. When I did speak, it would just be either to the teacher, a few very basic things about my practice through a translator that you know, nobody really understood anyway what I was trying to say if it got sophisticated at all, or you know, reporting to the management that my toilet wasn't working, you know, something like that. But otherwise, in, in seclusion and isolation, uh, just stuck with my own mind. <laughs> a lot of us here have been in, in the adult retreats, either here or elsewhere, and we know what that's like. So for a long time, I thought that, you know, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, there's nothing in my life that's going to be as difficult as this was. Uh, and then I had a child. <laughs> the toughest job you'll ever love, right? <laughs> Little did we know what we were signing up for. So, you know, like I said, the, the adult retreats here are very difficult, spending a time in formal retreat. Um, but in, in some ways, I can really appreciate now they're actually a breeze, you know, they're a walk in the park as far as practice goes. You know, what we may actually be experiencing can be incredibly difficult, incredibly hard. 
but the whole environment is optimized so that we have nothing to do really but be mindful. We have nothing to do but our practice. There's no distractions except the ones that we create for ourselves. But when we practice as a parent, you know, all of that changes. There may be a lot of joy in our lives, a lot of good things going on, but practice can become very difficult just because there's so much that we have to think about. There's so much we have to deal with. It's wonderful, you know, a lot of us have uh, a local community where we can go for support, where we can get time with the Dharma, get teaching, uh, good Dharma friends, you know, we may have our own practice that we do. But most of the time, just moment by moment, we really have to find our own way. We're really on our own. So it demands that we really be proactive. You know, we have to take the initiative to make the practice work, to make it happen, if it's going to happen. We have to really be grown-ups in our practice, I think, in a way that um, the childless folks don't quite understand, just as we're grown-ups in our parenting. I have a lot of Dharma friends, you know, that knew me BC before child, <laughs> and uh, often they'll ask me, you know, what's changed? What's changed in your practice now that you're a parent? And it's, it's very clear for me, and I'll tell them that what's different now is I don't feel like I have the luxury to muck around anymore. You know, when I didn't have a child, the practice could happen kind of casually. There are lots of opportunities to do different things with my practice. But I don't have that luxury anymore. You know, if I want to find time for formal practice in my life, I've got to carve it out very deliberately. I've got to make it happen. I'm sure we can all relate to that. And if I want to cultivate mindfulness just in daily activities, moment to moment, as I go through my day, my regular activities, I have to find ways to do that, ways that will work, ways that are really practical. So I've really got to make it happen by myself if it's going to happen. And this creates a very particular sense of urgency. You know, I'm just so keenly aware that the time to practice is right now. You know, there's not another time for it happen. Just as Ajahn uh, communicated in his song that he wrote for us here, um, you know, life's gift is this moment right now. There's not another time that it's going to happen. We've got to make it happen now. Because you never know when you're going to have to wash the dishes. And the Buddha said that household life is dusty and crowded. <laughs> this was kind of his uh, rationale for leaving it. <laughs> Which I'm sure we can also all relate to. <laughs> it is, you know, it's, it's crowded to some extent or another, you know, here in our culture, and it's not nearly as crowded as other places, but still. And it's dusty, you know, there's always that laundry or the dishes to do. And yet here we are in this life. You know, this is the life that we've chosen for ourselves or fallen into some of us. We've gotten here through our karma, through our desires, the choices that we've made. And it's a more difficult way to practice. It's a more difficult forum for practice, but not impossible. So even though the Buddha and many others have decided to forego family life to pursue their practice, there are also many, many others who have and do practice very sincerely within householders' life in one form or another, and people like us. And there's lots of stories from the teachings about lay people practicing, about parents practicing, and realizing uh, deep levels of wisdom, compassion, understanding. The, uh, there's lots and lots of stories in the, in the suttas about Anathapindaka, kind of, who's kind of the model lay uh, uh, devotee, devotee of the Buddha and all of the good works that he undertook, the cultivation of heart and mind that he undertook, 
and the really deep wisdom that he realized at, towards the end of his life, at the end of his life. And there's, I could go on and on, you know, there's all sorts of stories of people from every walk of life, every kind of family situation. So clearly, it's possible for parents, for householders to practice. We all know that as parents, we have many attachments. We have so many responsibilities. You know, there's so many things that we need to do for ourselves, for those that depend on us. And there's many, many, many more things that we want to do. <laughs> you know, we all have a long to-do list. Things that we want to do to try to create a good life for our families and to make this world a better place. And we love our children fiercely. I think this is the thing that surprised me most about parenthood. You know, with hindsight, <laughs> I'm surprised that I was surprised, but I was really taken um, by surprise by how strong the feelings are, the intensity of the emotions, the intensity of the devotion. You know, there's so much that we need and want to do to help them to flourish. And also at the same time, there's absolutely nothing that we can do to guarantee that they do. That's the kicker. <laughs> Which is really true with everything in life. You know, we want things to go well. We try our best. We make our best effort. But ultimately, there's nothing that we can do to guarantee the outcome. And this is the great paradox. This is kind of the great tragic flaw of life. That the universe is just not designed to run according to our wishes. And the Buddha talked about this as dukkha. Dukkha, the first noble truth. It's often called the truth of suffering, but that really kind of fails to capture the scope or the depth of the, the situation. That things just don't always go our way, and there's nothing that we can do to make them do so. And this is true perhaps nowhere so much as in family life. And for most of us, while we're raising children, the family is, is so much the center of our lives. It's so central and so important to how we are in the world, what we're engaged in, what's meaningful to us. So how can we hold this paradox you know, of wanting, wanting so much, and yet not being able to control, not being able to guarantee? And the answer that the Buddha gave is through equanimity, with equanimity of heart and mind through the cultivation of equanimity, which is this precious stillness, balance of heart and mind. Equanimity is the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, the first being metta, loving kindness, unconditional friendliness, the second being karuna, compassion. You may have noticed that there's a trend to our Dharma passwords here. The third is karuna, sympathetic joy, that ability to just really take unselfish delight in others' uh, happiness. And the last one is upekka, balance, centeredness, impartiality. And these four really form the foundation for a wholesome emotional life. Since becoming a parent, I definitely have a renewed appreciation for the Brahma Viharas, for the teachings, for the practice, They've really become essential to me as a touchstone. So I've gotten in the habit of asking, you know, as I go through my day, okay, what's going on in my heart right now? What's the quality of that? And if I find that there's 
Uh, one mm -hmm. of the Brahma Viharas is there and active if there's kindness, if there's compassion, sympathetic joy, or evenness of mind, equanimity, then I know I'm okay. It doesn't have to be an overpowering feeling. It doesn't have to be that I'm consumed with it. But if there's that flavor of those there, then I know that I'm on the right track. But if I don't find one of those there, if I find something else, then I know that I'm off track. You know, it's, a life almost becomes very simple. You know, these are the things that are the foundation for wholesome emotions, for a healthy heart, and everything else is off track. So, so then I can, you know, take the time and reflect on what's needed here, what's the right approach, what's appropriate to get myself back into the heart space that I want to be in. And equanimity is also the ground for the other three Brahma Viharas. So it permeates them. They're all built on it. They all rest on it. Kind of like the, the flowers that grow out of the soil. Equanimity is the soil. But though even though the flower is something separate from the soil, it's, it would be impossible for it to exist without that soil to grow in. And equanimity, equanimity is like that. The, the genuine love, uh, genuine friendliness, genuine compassion, genuine sympathetic joy, they all have to grow out of the wisdom of equanimity that underlies them. So they're kind of like the alchemist magic stone that transforms the, uh, lead into gold. I have to admit to uh, reading the whole Harry Potter series <laughs> some years ago when it was in vogue. Um, and there was the one that was about the sorcerer's stone, you know, that can transform things in this magical way. So equanimity has that power. You know, when equanimity comes into the heart, then attachment will just naturally be transformed into unconditional love or kindness or friendliness. When equanimity is present, then the grief we feel in the face of suffering can't keep that, that uh, flavor of suffering. It's going to transform into compassion that's concerned with the other and not caught up in our own uh, inner struggle. And when equanimity is present, then it's going to transform the, maybe the selfish joy that we have, the selfish uh, pleasure that we take in maybe our children's accomplishments or the good things in our life or in other people's lives to the sympathetic joy that's really just unselfishly, generously delighted for the, the happiness that's around us. And the teaching on equanimity is really one of the distinctive features of coming here. <laughs> for a family retreat like this, as opposed to other places. You know, we hear a lot about love and compassion uh, in parenting. And we hear that from lots of different sources. You know, we find it in other traditions in very lovely ways, uh, in lots of self-help books or you know, current parenting trends. Those things are talked about a lot. But equanimity, you know, equanimity regarding our children, equanimity regarding our families, that's not you know, a message that we're going to hear in a whole lot of other places. You know, it's really just not part of the general culture. And in fact, it can actually, you know, if you talk to somebody that's not familiar with, with the Dharma, with the Buddha's teachings, it can sound even sacrilegious. You know, people may be very shocked or appalled, you know, shocked and offended to hear about, you know, cultivating equanimity in our family life. You know, they're going to think, oh boy, you're raising the next Unabomber, you know. <laughs> we have this cult of, you know, total involvement, total commitment, total devotion to our children and families, at least in theory, even though it doesn't often, uh, doesn't always get acted out that way. And some of the teachings around equanimity in family life uh, can be shocking. I have one teacher who um, went to practice with Ayakema, 
and she was a mother and I think had four young children at the time. And she was, I guess, was coming in to talk to the teacher, talk to her about her practice and what was coming up. And she was just talking about her children and her worries and her responsibilities and what was, what was she going to do and just all of the entanglement that she had with her children. And at one point, uh, the teacher just said, stop. You have to cut through this. You have to be able to see this for what it is. You have to be able to see your children as if they were already dead. How'd you like to hear that in an interview? <laughs> and the te and my teacher was, you know, understandably just completely dumbfounded. She didn't know what kind of response to take that. She couldn't even really take that in. But there are many stories also in the suttas of loss, loss within family life, which as we know is true to life. It's what happens. Um, there was one very famous uh, teacher, a nun, who had been a mother, had been a householder, had had a family, and a very happy family life, a spouse that she was very much in love with and got along well with, and had two young children that she adored. And uh, through a series of just tragic accidents, kind of one after the, the other, she lost all of them. Went back to return to her parents' house and found that there had been a tragic accident there and that her whole family had perished and her family home was actually, had burned in a fire and she just lost everything. Um, you know, what, what, what for us would be unimaginable, inconceivable. And she was basically wandering destitute through the Indian countryside, just mad, you know, so she was naked, covered with dirt, and she just really lost her mind. And she came across one of the Buddha's gatherings. He was speaking to a group of people and they kind of saw her over there and they're like, Ugh, you know, trying to keep her back from the crowd. But the Buddha said, no, come, come. And he said, sister, compose yourself. And she kind of snapped out of it and got it and came back to her senses and somebody tossed her a robe and she covered herself. And she went on to practice and with that understanding, that deep understanding of loss that she had gained from her life experience, she became one of the deepest practitioners, uh, fully enlightened, and not just fully enlightened, but went on to become a great teacher and mentor to, within the nuns community, it said that she taught hundreds and hundreds of women and helped them towards realization because she had this deep understanding uh, that everything goes, that it's all ephemeral. So for most of us, we don't want to consider that possibility of those things happening in our lives, and yet they do happen. And there are those of us here, I'm sure, who have had uh, experiences of loss, important losses in life. They, we've all gotten to that age where uh, we will have seen that. Our parents are getting older or gone. You know, there have been important losses in our lives. And the Buddha taught that it's important to acknowledge that there are limitations to our relationships. And we can hold this with great compassion. You know, this is not meant to be a, you know, kind of like, well, that's the way it is, kid. You know, deal with it. But we can really hold this with a lot of compassion, the greatest compassion, that the important relationships in our lives, you know, they had beginnings, and they're going to have endings, one way or another. And this is another part of dukkha, another part of the unsatisfactory of life, unsatisfactoriness of life, how it doesn't deliver what we want. We hold on to each other, but if we hold too tight, then we're going to suffer because at some point we inevitably have to let go. Ajahn also included this in his song. You know, He says there's nothing that we can really hold on to. The tighter we try to hold, the more that we're going to suffer. 
And that's the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering. So a big part of bringing the Dhamma into our family life is learning to hold lightly, to hold gently with love that's informed by wisdom, with the wisdom that's expressed by equanimity. The traditional phrase that we associate with equanimity is uh, the kamasaka, kamasaka, which literally means karma air, <laughs> karma air. When I first encountered this, I thought this was a very odd way to arrive at equanimity, but this is the traditional phrase that communicates that we're the heirs of our karma. So it's like every moment we're inheriting all the cumulative effects of our past actions, our past choices. The actions within this life, for sure, and you know, in the traditional teachings, there's a much larger view that it goes you know, much, further, much further back than that to, to many past lives. And Bhante talked a little bit about this meaning of the word kama this morning, uh, that it has a sense of sensuality, the sensual realm. So when we do something that's based in sensuality, which would be some form of craving or desire, aversion or just ignorance uh, and attention associated with the sensual realm, that has a conditioning effect on the mind that's not without effect. Everything we do, really, even the smallest thing, the tiniest action of the mind, has a conditioning effect on us. And the mind is really highly impressionable. And it's interesting how current research is starting to, to take an interest in this and bear this out. And this, some of that research has been going on actually here at IMS with meditators, showing how the mind is impressionable. It changes based on what you do with it. So what we do and what we think and what we feel literally, literally in a physical sense, shapes the mind, shapes how the mind operates. And the more we do something, the more that that becomes a habit. And the Buddha said that what, what one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the tendency of one's mind. So we each go through life carrying around our own unique baggage of mental conditioning. And that's true for us, that's true for our parents, our partners, our children, it's true for everyone. And there are other factors that come into play. It's not that this is a, de is a deterministic process. It's not fate. But there's really no escaping that inheritance that we receive every moment from everything that's come before, which is one of the reasons why uh, the teachings on sila, the practice of uh, morality, ethics, that we uh, communicate here through the precepts is so central, because the Buddha realized that everything that we do is so important so that uh, we should really take the greatest care because it's really going to shape our futures. What we do now shapes the unfolding of our futures. Really. So we go through life together in our families and in friendships and our communities, and they can be wonderfully supportive and enriching. But ultimately, we each have to walk our own path. You know, we love our children. We love them so much, but we can't walk their path for them or even pave it for them. And this is the fundamental understanding of equanimity, the acceptance that there's things that we can do and there's things that we just can't do. And in the end, we have to let go and let life just live itself. When I was 11 years old, <laughs> back in the 70s, <laughs> 
a family friend, a friend of my mother's, gave me um, this little book, The Prophet, by Khalil Gibran, probably. Uh, some of you are familiar with it. And it was uh, kind of the perfect gift for this moment when I was coming, just starting to come of age. Um, so I consider this, this woman a great benefactor. It was kind of the turning point in setting me that path that eventually led me to the Dharma. And a lot of those poems that are in there have uh, stayed, w stayed with me over the years. You know, when you get something that young, it really kind of sinks in and takes hold. And there's this uh, one poem on children in there, which you may be familiar with. It says, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not on you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he, as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. So this isn't you know, phrased exactly in the language that we tend to use here in Buddhist terms, but we can still get the sense of it. I, you know, I remember reading this at 11 and thinking, if only my parents could get this. <laughs> We've all, we can all probably remember those feelings. You know, it's, it's really interesting how our children have a natural desire to be parented with equanimity. They have a natural sense of what the balanced kind of relationship is. You know, they don't want to be held so tightly. They do want to be held, but they want a light embrace, one that's diffused with equanimity, that kind of holding that's led, ready to let go at a moment's, no, moment's notice when the time is right. And we can cultivate this as parents. We can cultivate this as human beings. And that's the, the offer that the Buddha made to us, that we can be that stable bow from which our children can fly. So one tool that we have for developing equanimity is what's called wise reflection. And we place a lot of emphasis here on meditation. That's kind of our specialty here at IMS, you know, outside of this context when we have our normal adult retreats, you know, it's meditate, meditate, meditate. And it's great to have a forum to come and do that because there's so few places in the world, you know, that are really just completely uh, optimized for that endeavor. And it's a great endeavor. But the Buddha also recommended in the teachings, and you find this a lot, um, that we practice wise reflection, that it can be helpful in many different situations in spiritual life. So wise reflection means deliberately thinking, deliber deliberately reflecting on things in a way that's consistent with the truth, what we might call cognitive reflecting, you know, in kind of modern psychological terms. 
This is, it's thinking about things in a way that's going to help us to bring our understanding into alignment with the truth, into, into alignment with the way that things really are. We can practice this on kind of a big macro level by working on keeping a big picture view of the world and our place in it. And so we can remind ourselves that at any given time, there's this wide variety of conditions and circumstances that are playing out and all of this comma, all of this conditioning. And we can remind ourselves that the world contains everything within it, the beautiful and the ugly, the light and the dark, the positive and the negative, what we call the vicissitudes of life, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And these are in constant flux and constant coexistence. So the big perspective that comes from this kind of conscious reflection can be a great source of patience and strength. One of my Burmese teachers calls uh, the quality of, of this kind of patience in the face of whatever life brings, spiritual stamina. And he also seemed to think that Westerners were particularly lacking in it. Just because our lives here, for many of us, or especially for the ones that he encounters, are very easy. You know, we don't have to deal with all the, the snakes and the scorpions and the, the illness and things that uh, other parts of the world are faced with on a daily basis that it's impossible to avoid. So can we cultivate spiritual stamina, just as we would cultivate physical stamina? And when we're in touch with the bigger picture, we, then it's easier for us to be patient and to keep our balance in, in the face of all the challenges that life deals us. My grandmother was a great teacher for me about this level of kind of the big picture level of wise reflection and equanimity. She was born in Tsarist Russia at the beginning of the 20th century and grew up in kind of a, kind of a medium-sized city, kind of a cosmopolitan place. You know, she wasn't uh, a peasant. She was, uh, her family had a business in town and was relatively prosperous and they had, it was, you know, had been handed down for generations. Everybody knew how the world worked. They had their place in it. They were relatively comfortable. And then for, uh, she came of age, went through her teens, and as a young woman, World War I started and the Russian Revolution came along, and her whole world was turned completely upside down. You know, the whole world order that had been in place for generations that was so cozy and familiar was just, you know, out the window, and everything went insane. And her family managed to get to the U.S., you know, went through, you know, again, that's a whole story, everything that they went through, you know, fleeing through uh, battle zones and, you know, having to leave everything behind. Very common American story. And they eventually made it here, and what did she find here? You know, again, a completely different world, you know, like nothing she's familiar with at all. She has to learn a new language as a young adult and start her life all over again, which she did. And the family got established and was relatively successful here, too. And then she saw all the changes that went on in our country, in America, which is our country for some of us, but went on in this culture throughout the 20th century, you know, from the 1920s to the 1990s, you know, if you can think of everything that it encompasses and lived to see the fall of the USSR, so, you know, this regime that had completely turned her world in Russia upside down. So it's just mind-boggling to think of the change that she'd seen in her life. You know, it's nothing compared with what I've seen so far. And yet she had this incredible serenity towards the end of her life. She was really radiant. She had really gotten that lesson out of her life. 
you know, we would come and we would tell her what's going on in our life. You know, there's this and that, and you know, this, I'm struggling with this. And she'd just kind of say, well, you know, things change. <laughs> that was pretty much her response to everything. You know, I think I remember talking to her about uh, the fall of the Soviet Union when that happened, and she's just like, hmm, oh, well, <laughs> things change. I saw it once, and it's happening again. What's the big deal? You know, I'd like to think that this is one of the rewards of growing old, you know, and for some of us it is, but some of us have to work at it a little bit more. So she had really learned, you know, deeply that things change, but not just that things change. That's just the first part of the equation. But the second part of the equation is that that's okay, that we can still be happy. We can still find our well-being in the face of that. That wisdom lies not in letting go, but in realizing that things are going anyway. As one great teacher said. So remembering to reflect on the big picture helps us to keep things in perspective, to keep a balanced mind and approach things with greater equanimity. And our formal practice, our mindfulness meditation, and all the ways that we find to, to bring mindfulness into life also helps us with this, in a, maybe in a deeper way, in a more fundamental way. Our mindfulness meditation is really uh, central in the cultivation of a balanced heart and mind. It's actually the tool that has the greatest potential to bring really deep transformation on this, on this front, the way we approach the world, the way we live our lives. You know, there's just, there's just simply no substitute for seeing something for ourselves. And this is what the Buddha always used to invite. He'd say, come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. So we would offer all the teachings, you know, as Ajahn said, he taught for 45 years, again, mind-boggling, and laid out really extensive teachings. It's not like he's just going around giving a few pithy statements here and there. He's giving, you know, extensive discourses on all sorts of different topics to all sorts of different audiences and all sorts of different forms. So he laid it all in line. You know, he said, I teach with an open hand, you know, meaning there's nothing that he kept hidden kind of behind his back that was the, the secret teaching. He laid it all out, but then he would always say, ehipasiko. Come and see for yourselves, because ultimately it does no good just to listen. We have to see it in our own hearts and minds. So what do we do when we sit or walk in mindfulness meditation or bring mindfulness just in small ways into our daily life? It's that we pay attention. We pay attention to what's actually happening. So we get a chance to see for ourselves what's going on all the time when we're not paying, paying attention which is this constant flow of changing conditions. That's what's always happening. It's the only thing that's reliable, actually, is that everything's always changing. And not even just only over the course of our lives. You know, we can all see that, that over the course of our lives, things change, like with my grandmother. And not even over the course of a single day, you know, how the day changes and our activities change as we go through the day and our feelings. But on the, the tiniest level, from moment to moment, things don't stay the same for even the briefest moment, even less than a second. And by sitting and really paying close and careful attention, we can see this in a way that we can't otherwise see. And this is really the gift of our formal practice, that we can see this on such a tiny level that we can become completely convinced of it, that it leaves no doubt. You know, we're sitting, and one moment the mind is clear and calm, 
And the next moment, it's a lot more lost in thought. We're gone. What happened? And then we're back again. How did that happen? You know? One moment we're falling asleep, and the next something, a thought comes up, and we're agitated, we're restless. And then another emotion comes, and we're, we're sad and despondent. And then uh, there's a beautiful sound outside, and joy comes in. And on and on and on, you know, we, we can all describe our own uh, inner experience in just a few minutes, all the different changes that happen. And this is how things is. This is how things are. And it's nothing personal. We get that too. We get that it's not, this is not just what's going, in my, going on in my heart, in my mind and body. This is really what it is to be human, what it is probably to be sentient. This, hap- this is true for everyone all of the time. And the more that we watch the show, the deeper that understanding sinks into our consciousness so that it stops being something that we have to remind ourselves of through reflection, through thought. It becomes something that we really know, something that's ingrained, something that's, that's in our cellular knowledge, our instinctive knowledge, our intuitive knowledge. It becomes like our understanding of gravity. You know, we can think about gravity. Maybe some of us can think about it more <laughs> explicitly than others. You know, we can think about the fact that gravity operates and how it operates. But when we're actually walking, we're not thinking about gravity. You know, each step we take, we just know instinctively. It's ingrained that the foot is going to come back down to the ground. You know, it's not going to fly off into space. We have that understanding deep down in there, in the intuitive place in our brains, the instinctive place. So in the same way, when we start to really have this intuitive understanding that conditions of life are constantly in flux, then we can start to live our lives accordingly. accordingly. And our hearts start to soften so that we can hold things gently. We don't try to hold so tight because we know, we really know deeply that it's impossible, that things are always changing. And we come to realize that it's kind of futile within, working within the sensual realm just to try to accumulate more and more pleasant moments, more and more sensual gratification, that that's not a reasonable way to pursue happiness, and that it's futile, really, to get into any kind of a struggle with what has already arisen in the moment, because here it is. You know, we're not in control. And, this, and that second part of the equation, that that's okay. It's okay. We can be at peace with that. We can stop being so excited about the constant change and our inability to control it. So then our hearts and minds can settle. They can really calm down. This is a lot of what equanimity is is about. It's just really a deep calming down, settling down. So our hearts and minds calm down, and they come into greater balance. And we find a deeper peace. And then there's space. There's space for the kindness. There's space for the compassion to arise out of that. The Buddha said that this kind of equanimity is the greatest happiness. There's a famous quote of Pali verse. He said, Anicca vada sankara upadavaya damino upakitua nirjanti tasang upasumo sukho which means that all conditioned things are impermanent. It is their nature to arise and pass away. 
living in harmony with this truth brings peace, which is the greatest happiness. That's a novel concept in our society, that peace is the greatest happiness. It's another distinctive feature of coming here. It's something that we don't generally hear from the world around us. And cultivating this kind of peace is a gift not only to ourselves, but really to the world. Because our ability to be responsive to the needs of those around us is really a direct function of our own balance and peace of mind. You know, how steady of a bow are we? You know, as parents, we know this. We know how when we get off balance, we aren't the parents that we want to be. There's this uh, famous uh, image, this metaphor of uh, pulling someone out of quicksand. You know, if we want to save somebody who's stuck in the mud, we really need to be on firm foundation ourselves. We need to be on solid ground ourselves before we can help someone else out. Otherwise, we're both just going to sink in the struggle. The quality of heart of equanimity is really impossible to imagine. You know, we can sit here and talk about it a lot. We can make a lot of words around it, but it's really impossible to conjure up an imagined sense of what it feels like. It doesn't have anything to do with numbness or indifference, which is the image that kind of most easily comes to mind. That's the model that we have for equanimity in our culture. But it really has to do with uh, an incredible quality of openness, softness, receptivity. It's like an empty bowl that's ready to be filled with whatever might come along, whether it's beautiful or ugly, something we like or don't like. It just receives everything equally, without judgment, without reactivity. When I was um, a girl in elementary school sometime, I had a friend who'd come from Germany, and I would go over to play at her house. And she had this very exotic item, which was a feather bed, which was something I'd never encountered before, like a genuine German feather bed. And um, it, the way this one was is um, you could kind of pat it and pat it and pat it and puff it up, and it would get taller and taller and taller, kind of like a, a Dutch pancake or something. You know, it seemed like it could get you know, two feet tall. I'm sure it wasn't that much. So we'd puff it and puff it and puff it and puff it, and then we'd kind of stand on the footboard, and we'd go, ker plunk, you know, and fall into it. And the, the, the kind of um, visceral sensation has really stayed with me over the years. It was so distinct this feeling of just falling into this complete softness that just completely engulfed, and everything around me was soft. It was just an amazing feeling. And just viscerally, that's the feeling that equanimity has. So it's not this kind of cold indifference or aloofness. It's this just really the softness that can receive anything and is not perturbed by it. Everything just falls into it, and it doesn't create ripples. So this understanding really involves a radical redefining or revisioning of what happiness is. It involves this kind of decoupling of our sense of well-being from the ups and downs of pleasure and pain, you know, the roller coaster of all the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. (coughs) But if we can connect with that space, then it really brings a much deeper satisfaction and richness to our lives. This richness of being just equally open to whatever arises. And our deepest happiness, in fact, this is what the Buddha taught us, comes from that kind of openness, that open connection with the truth in all of its forms. 
Buddha said, um, this is from the Mangala Sutta. He said, a mind unshaken when touched by life's vicissitudes, sorrowless, fearless, and untroubled. This is the blessing supreme, the supreme blessing. And I would invite us all to consider that possibility, that this is a possibility for us, because it really is. It's one of the potentialities of our humanity, that we have this innate capacity for this kind of openness, receptivity, equanimity, and balance, just as we have the natural capacity for kindness. You know, most of us don't question that. We've had enough experience of kindness that we know that that's available to us, even if it's not there all the time, that we can cultivate it. But it's really the same with equanimity. That's an innate capacity of the human heart. And we can all aspire to cultivate it and bring it more into our lives. So let's just sit for a minute. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.